0: Welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast. Everything you need to know to ride. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fast Talk. I am Chris Case, managing editor of Velo News. Joined today by my lovely co-host As always, Coach Trevor Connor. Today, we're at the University of Colorado Sports Medicine and Performance Center, surrounded by world-class physiologists, physical therapists, biomechanists, all doing their thing, making a bunch of cyclists very fast. Today's topic is a fun one. It was sparked by a listener from Iowa who asked, can I really be a climber living here in the flatlands? We're excited because our answer to this question might actually surprise you. Climbing isn't as simple as dropping a few pounds and spending your days on mountain passes. It's true. In fact, what really differentiates climbing may be things as mundane as how hard you're able to push yourself and the cadence at which you ride. So today, we'll tackle our listener's question from a few angles. First, does dropping weight make you a better climber? Fact is, for the last few decades, Tour de France winners, who can climb with the best, aren't the lightest people. Why this is lies in something Trevor's excited to explain, called Allometric Scaling. Get ready for references to 1950s horror movies, growth rays, and giants. Second, we'll talk about whether you need to climb hills to be a climber. This all goes back to that simple question, does it all come down to power to weight? Finally, we'll do a deeper dive into some of the particulars of climbing, including the effects of grade, cadence, standing versus staying seated, and the critical nature of core strength. Joining us for the roundtable discussion today, we're excited to have Sepp Kuss here with us. Sepp is a Colorado native. You may have seen his name in the results riding for a rally cycling in the past well for 2018 sep is stepping up his game quite a bit he'll be joining the world tour team lotto nl jumbo and we're really excited to see what sep can do he is a fantastic climber as you will learn in a future podcast um, about climbing as well also joining us dr inigo san milan the director of the university of colorado sports medicine and performance center a world-class physiologist, well known for his work with with uh, world tour teams in the past, and basically a genius. Finally, you'll hear on this podcast a bit from Joe Dombrowski and Ned Overend, two fantastic climbers as well. All of us around this table get excited when the road starts going up. Let's climb into this one. Literally, let's make you fast.
1: So, Chris, have you heard about Health IQ? I have, but I want to hear more. This is actually a pretty cool product. It is a life insurance company that specializes in healthy, active people like cyclists and runners. So basically us. They are able to give us better rates for life insurance. And they have a special URL just for listeners of Fast Talk, which is www.healthiq.com slash Fast Talk. All one word. While you're there, you can submit race results, screen grabs of your Strava, or map my ride account, or basically any other way you can prove that you are out running, cycling, and living an active lifestyle, and you will get a better quote. What more could we ask for? So our topic today is climbing and what has brought this about is we received a question from a listener that i will read to you quickly it said i recently listened to your most recent fast talk i am actually a cyclist from iowa and hearing you talk about the midwest i have a question there is no doubt there is a shortage of mountains in the great state of iowa the best i have at my disposal are a few climbs in the river valley about 200 feet and 100 feet 100 foot climb at 10 to 15 percent gradient i was wondering if you'd be able to address the issue Are Midwesterners destined to be sprinters or at least hindered from uh, being competitive in the high-level races across the country with grand climbs? I am a second-year racer this season and wanted to know if what the general opinion of you all and maybe some pro-continental riders are on the subject and recommendations for going forward would be in general. With the body of a sprinter and my geographical situation, would you recommend fine-tuning my sprinting abilities or find some way to be an all-arounder? So that is the question. Can you become a climber living on the in the flatlands? And do you need to be super light?
0: I think it's interesting to note how little research has been done about climbing generally. We do know some things. Trevor's going to go into some of the geekier almetric scaling, the science and physics of, of climbing. But maybe this is a question for you, and you go, why is there so little research done on climbing? Is it just the fact that the equipment, you know, you can't test climbing in a lab. There's no gravity when you're on a trainer. Is that what it comes down to, do you think?
2: Yeah, that's a very good question that I, I, I agree. There's not much research on, on, on climbing and, and it still remains, uh, um, in a way, a mystery, right? Why people from uh, uh, flat areas, they can be good climbers as well. When the, the, the rationale tells us that that should not be the case, right? But, uh, but absolutely, it is the case. Uh, and it's just more too than just uh, living in the area. With climbs, but yeah, there's not much research, and and I agree, you know, it's difficult to replicate, you know, those uh, those uh, physiological and metabolic demands in the laboratory, and that's where like there's not much research done, on, on uh, you know the response to climbing versus time trialing versus in the flat with the same person, you know, so we need more research on this area.
0: We do need more research, and and it's Trevor and I are actually embarking on a a little bit of research of our own. Um, It'll appear in the magazine soon, all about climbing. It's interesting. When I asked a few professional riders to be a part of that study, more than one of them said, nah, I don't really want to know the science of climbing. It takes away from the mystique of it. It takes away from the romanticism of it. Which is maybe another part of it. This, we do have this, these visions of people suffering in the mountains and the sense of accomplishment. And maybe if we just break it down to data points and an equation, it takes some of that romanticism away.
1: So, Sep, just so our listeners know, we're actually this week going to be doing some time trials for this article. And so we had other climbers say, no, don't want anything to do with it, as Chris was saying. But we have you here, and you're going to be kicking Chris in my butt (laughs) in a couple days up up a few climbs. Uh, You never know. (laughs) So so how do you feel? Why did you not say, I I, I don't want to lose the romanticism?
3: Yeah, I think, uh, you know, for me, I'm very uh, 50-50 on it. Part of me is, um, yeah, I I enjoy just simply going out and climbing because it it feels feels awesome. And, you know, there there definitely is that mystique about it. But at the same time, I really appreciate the... um, the physiological data that, that goes into riding in general, and especially climbing, because that's what I enjoy to do. Yeah, I think it's a really important research to maybe see what what you do versus other people do on certain climbs, physiologically or uh, bike position-wise. Um, so I think very useful information to have for, for myself.
1: I think the reality is he just wants to kick our butt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All ego. Yeah. <laughs> no. He's
0: also very young. He's he's striving to to be a better rider. That's what it should come down to, right? Yeah.
3: Yeah. Always always hungry for for new information and to improve, so
0: that is a good way to lead into Trevor's allometric scaling, which will take all the romantics out of climbing. Would you like to uh allometric talk
1: Allometric scaling is one of the most exciting and romantic things. <laughs> Actually, Chris thinks I'm joking, but th- this is one of my favorite things to explain in physiology because it's just cool.
0: I know you have a great story about a a, a a giant from the 1950s horror movie that you'd like to tell us about.
1: And a dinosaur. And a dinosaur, yes. This is why I love it. So yeah, the way I like to explain allometric scaling, go back and watch Jurassic Park sometime. Because if you look closer, there was a nice little detail in the movie that a lot of other movies get wrong. That was physiologically accurate. There's a scene where they're being chased by a T Rex and and they're showing the T Rex going about 35 miles an hour. But if you, they're in a car running, uh, driving away from it. If you look closely, the T Rex is not running. It is walking really, really fast because a T Rex could not run. It is too big. And that is all because of allometric scaling. The basic concept is that as you increase in mass so if we got some 50 sci-fi movie ray and increased you in size your your mass is going to scale at a certain rate but that doesn't mean everything else scales at the same rate. Um, as a matter of fact, almost every variable in our body will scale differently uh, which is important so one of the key ones and get into your 50-foot human mass is three-dimensional. So as it scales up, it scales up at a factor of three. What determines the strength of our bones is the cross-sectional area of a a bone, which is two-dimensional. So it scales only at a factor of two. So as you increase in size, your mass is scaling up exponentially faster than the cross-section of your bones, which means pretty quickly your bones aren't going to be able to support your weight. So if you're ever in a 50 sci-fi movie and you're getting attacked by a 100-foot person, really easy way to beat them. Make them walk. They will break every bone in their body and <laughs> you you won't want won the fight. Okay. But it's not just limited to the cross-section of your bones and, and mass. Everything is in allometric scaling is measured relative to mass, um, but scales differently. So the reason I'm bringing all this up is because there is this belief that to be a climber, lighter is always better. But same thing happens. As you get smaller, not everything scales the same way. Um, And so it isn't always to your advantage to necessarily be smaller. Things that scale differently, one of the big ones is aerodynamics because what determines aerodynamics is your frontal area, which is two-dimensional. And again, mass is three-dimensional. So a much smaller rider is much less aerodynamic than a bigger rider. Uh, I should say power generally scales pretty much the width weight. So a lighter rider and a, a larger rider to a degree, and we'll get to this in a minute, can have very similar power to weight. But that smaller rider is going to be far less aerodynamic. Which means if you're a smaller rider, you might be able to climb pretty well. But as soon as you get on the flats, you're going to be struggling. There are other things that don't scale equally. And somebody actually did a test on efficiency climbing. And discovered it doesn't scale equally as well. And smaller riders actually are less efficient climbing than larger riders.
0: Now, to, to clarify here, you're not suggesting that people put on weight to become better climbers. There's a happy balance somewhere. And perhaps Inigo an could speak to that. How does How does a rider find that point? How do you maximize power to weight?
2: All right. So yeah, that's a, that's a good uh, question for sure. And it's that um, um, the power to, rate, to weight ratio is absolutely critical because uh, when you're climbing, you're defeating gravity. So therefore, that's when the weight is a key. But just doing some numbers, uh, it's not clear always that you need to be lighter. So let's say an example of a, an 80 kilo cyclist, which is about 175 pounds, whose power output on the flat or maximum power output sustainable for, let's say, FTP could be 425 watts. Right. So that person at 425 watts and the flat is going to be a beast. It's going to be very, very fast. However, when that person has to drag his weight climbing, it's going to be very difficult. His power to weight ratio then is only 5 watts per kilogram, which might not be enough you know, at the highest level. Mm-hmm. For example, we see at the pro tour level, the average tempo climbing the, uh, at the, to the France is about 5 watts per kilogram. So while others is a tempo, for him is maximum. But uh, he's a beast on the flat. On the other opposite uh, pole, we have the typical, classical climber. Very small, petite guy, uh, 60 kilos, that's about 132 pounds, whose maximum power output is 330 watts only. That's almost 100 watts less than the big guy on the flat. So the climber is going to have a very hard time, you know, on the flat to keep up at that power output. However, when we start climbing, the power-to-weight ratio of that climber is 5.5 watts per kilogram. So without a doubt, that climber is going to be faster than the uh, than the big guy. Those are the two poles. So, but at the same time, that guy is going to have a very hard time in the flats or time trials. So that's what we've seen that that there's the new kind of not the new. This has it's been forever, but this is kind of the, the predominant prototype, right, of a, of a, of an all-around cyclist. And that's be maybe your guy, which is about 70 kilos. That's about 155 pounds, which is pretty much the weight that uh, in the last uh, years, the majority of the winners or top players in the, in, in cycling have that, that weight. So let's say that, that that cyclist maximum power output, it's a 385 watts, for example, right? So uh, yeah, three 385 watts is not far away from 425 watts from the big guy. So he's not gonna be that far off from the big guy as also in, a, in the time trial, but his power to weight ratio is 5.5 watts per kilogram, which is significantly higher than the big guy. And it is, at the same time, the same power-to-weight ratio as the climber. So they're going to be similar climbing, but, you know, the climber has, in this case, about 55 watts less than the uh, 70 kilo guy. So I think that that's kind of a way that uh, we have to find the balance, you know, uh, between power-to-weight ratio and absolute power as well.
1: So really back up what uh, Dr. Samalan is saying here, there was actually a study done in 1999, and this was in... uh uh, this was in a journal called Medicine and Science and Sports and Exercise, where they, they took very high level cyclists and categorized them into sprinters, all arounders, time trialers, and climbers, and compared them. Looked at the allometric scaling, looked at their power to weight, looked at a whole variety of factors. Uh, and what they found in this study was that actually, just as Dr. Salman was saying, when you compared the time trialers and the climbers, they had, the time trialers actually had a slightly better power to weight. So the time travelers could either match or even beat the climbers up a long climb. They're going to be steadier. The climbers have these great bursts of speed, and you'll see them attack, where the time travelers tend to be a little more boring going up the climb. But the time travelers can actually win to the top of the climb. But then when you actually get them on the flats, especially in time travelers, obviously the time traveler is going to kill the climber. So the conclusion of the study, as you were saying, was The time travelers are the ones that are most likely to win a Grand Tour or a big stage race. And you look at the past winners of the Tour de France, it's very rarely the pure climber. It's, as as you were saying, somebody right around 70 kilos who tends to be more of a a time trial style rider.
0: And you specifically see it in recent years with Chris Froome, who doesn't go with every attack that a a climber, a pure climber throws down. He'll get dropped, or it looks like he's getting dropped. He's just staying steady. The other guys are attacking him gradually he brings them back. Oftentimes he goes beyond them and they get dropped and he goes on to take time out of them. So I don't know if that's because he has taught himself that that strategy works or if he's physiologically built to go that way. Obviously we know he's a good time trialist, so it's in him to to pace. Pacing well is something he's good at.
2: And and this is something that we work quite a bit in this specific area. So try to teach the cyclist, you know, how much they can uh, afford, what's the power output they can afford on a climb before blowing up. So when we do physiological tests, lactate tests, we know very well what is the power output that a cyclist can sustain. So put, taking this into a competition, let's say that you are a climbing at 5.5 watts per kilogram. You might go to 6 watts per kilogram for only like maybe two minutes or so. If you do more than that, you're going to blow up. So you want to stay as long as you want in the 5.5 watts per kilogram, for example. So that means that maybe a lighter climber is going to go you know, and be able to sustain that burst longer than you. That eventually might even pay for that, which is a typical thing that we see: people attack and they pay for that. And we know how to ma- manage that in the laboratory as well as field tests. So we can train the athlete to really sustain the power output. They can specifically sustain during the entire climb, and not. Uh, and and it's it's a way to be, uh, strategical about it uh, when people. Until now that we see this more scientific approach, climbing was kind of, let's go for it. You know, everything goes. You know, whoever has the bigger, the bigger balls, you know, would go <laughs> up there, right? And, uh, and, and, and the highest having capacity was while well on the flat. It's been very well strategized, you know, like you try to, you know, be behind the bigger guy, you know, and be intelligent and not waste time and follow the peloton and be in the right spot, you know, be in the, in, the, in the center, not in the back. And so those strategies, when it came to climbing, you didn't have many, many tools, but this is one that now we can see that is, it's quite applicable with high success.
0: I'm curious to ask, Sep. We were talking about the the romantic nature, the mystique of climbing, and it's attacking off the front, uh, going through a crowd of Basque fans all clad in orange, and the smoke is rising, and you don't get that if you're Chris Froome because you're behind all those guys when they're attacking and you're not getting the cheers, but he gets the cheers in the end when he wins the race. Now, you're a young guy who's still honing his craft, and you want... To experience probably the highs of being able to attack on climbs because that's what you love to do, but you've got to start thinking probably to yourself: this is the new way. This is the way it's done now. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think like Dr. Samalan
3: said, there's you know every time you go above your <clears throat> your threshold or you're doing those those bursts, and when more lactate is entering your body, you're you're paying for it. So for me, myself, a lot of my training is. Kind of designed around buffering the lactate to be able to follow or make those accelerations, but and that's also kind of the style I prefer to race in. <clears throat> At Tour of Utah, for example, on a stage with with a lot of attacks, I was you know up there in top three, and then on a you know a longer maybe twenty minute um, time trial where it's just a very let's say six watts per kilo or whatever sustained effort, I wasn't nearly as good. So I think that speaks to maybe my my own riding style and what you see nowadays with uh, the the Chris Froome's and the the Dumalins versus the Contador's and stuff. So yeah, I think it's it's very interesting to, to see that.
1: I was waiting for you to go. Wait a minute. <laughs> I didn't know if you considered yourself a climber or time trial style rider, but yeah, not, not time trialist,
3: but working on my uh, <laughs> my drag. <laughs> I was just in the the uh, velodrome the other week, and apparently I have a pretty. Pretty high drag, so I'm working on my flexibility to hopefully bring that
1: down a Get bit. Get the aerodynamics a little bit. Yeah,
3: yeah, it's important. When, I,
1: w- when I went into work in the velodrome, the only thing my coach said is, no, you're mm-hmm. you, you not track rider. Right
2: <laughs> <laughs> One thing that I would like to, to, to bring up really quick is that the way also um, the cycling has changed uh, in the uh, uh, big the grand tours. So um, back in the days until the 80s, the first week is always, in the Tour de France, is usually flat. There's right. a lot of flat and sprints, right? So back in those days, that uh, people would not uh, race hard until the helicopters showed up. And that's the last 30, 40 Ks, and everybody would go for it. So that meant that for many climbers, it was an easy stage as well. Everybody was easy. And then they would show up to the mountain stages with full of energy. And uh, and they would just, I remember, they would call in the... Uh, the, um, the, the Colombians, when they came, Lucho Herrera, Fabio Parra, in the, in the 80s, they would just kill everybody. And then Bernard Inol said the way to destroy the Colombians is to have them the entire week, you know, with a 100% from the beginning. And that's exactly one of the things that has happened in cycling. Now we see that the first week of the Tour de France is very high intensity from the gun and it's flat. So if you are a very light rider, you are going to suffer yes or yes. That if week. you're
0: Nairo Quintana. If
1: you're, if you're, <laughs> well, was it two years ago they, they the took just the, the climbing stages and if you just add up those times, Quintana won the tour. Right. So it was really on the flat stages, on okay. the time trials that, that Froome beat them. Which is remarkable,
2: right? But, but many of the, the classical climbers, they're, they're, they, they don't show up with much energy for the climb, day, climbing days, right? Whereas the Giro is the opposite. The Giro you see that the, the first no, second day or third day already, you have a mountain stage. And that's where like uh, those climbers, they're really active in the beginning. I- I've seen multiple uh, cyclists uh, kind of recommending them, hey, the tour is not your race to shine; is the Giro because you're a climb, pure climber. From day two, you're gonna have uh, a climb. But anyway, I just want to bring that up because it's also the way cycling has evolved.
0: Hey, Trevor. Hey, Chris. When's the last
1: time you took a run? Oh, wow! Actually two weeks ago. Oh, not bad. Are you still sore? I Yeah, I am actually. And was I, it... think I, I think my fastest mile was like 11 minutes per mile. Oh my god, that's not running actually. And yeah, I think some walkers were giving me a good challenge.
0: <laughs> what about swimmers in a pond next to the path you were running on? Were they passing you?
1: Yeah, no, I avoided that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. it's It brings up the interesting topic of eccentric contractions of the muscles and so well let's not get into that that's another episode of fast talk what we're here today to talk about is health iq a very unique life insurance company that specializes in healthy active people like cyclists runners and triathletes they're able to give us favorable quotes on life insurance and they have a special website just for fast talk listeners www.healthiq.com slash fast talk Head over there, submit race results, screen grabs of your Strava account, your MapMyRun account, any other way you can prove that you are an active, healthy individual, and they'll give you a better quote on life insurance. All at Health IQ. Let's bring it back around to that listener's question. Do a little bit more roundtable um, discussion of, you live in the flats. Do you need to ride on actual hills to be a good climber?
1: Well, certainly you go back to what we were just talking about with, with the different style of riders. Uh, really what that study was saying, it really does come mostly down to power to weight. And it's time trialers who aren't necessarily the people you really think of as climbers. Uh, who could potentially do the best and they can still potentially beat the climbers. So there is some argument there that, no, you just improve your power to weight and you're going to be able to climb well. I'm not sure I fully buy it, but there there is a fairly strong argument for that.
0: What about in a physiological sense or, or more so just down to the muscles, what muscle groups are involved on flat riding versus climbing? Is there a difference? And can you Mimic the effects of climbing by riding on flats with, say, big gear, cl- big gear work, or something else.
2: Well, that's a good question, and uh, that's another thing that I think that's what we need more research on that. You know, we, first in the first place, we don't know what is the right biomechanics of pedaling for a cycling, uh, and within that, uh, for the uh, different weights and, and sizes and, and, and gears. Right, everybody's different, so I don't think we have that dialed in to know. But I, but I, I I agree with with uh, with Trevor in that. It's about power to weight, weight ratio. If you have a, if you train that, you know, and get it up there, uh, it's going to benefit you in the climate for sure. Uh, so I don't think it's absolutely necessary to live on the climbs by no means, and we see that in, in in examples of many professional cyclists who have been very successful. That said, something that helps is is living in, in an a mountain environment. Uh, it, it helps you to, to 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 have the feeling of climbing, which is something that. It's difficult to explain, right? But uh, facing a climb, the way your, your, your position is, the way you read the climb, the way you play with the gears, you know, and how you stand up, come back and sit down, it, there's some training to that, that uh, if you're not exposed to that, you're, you're, you know, you're going to show up to the climbing race and like, oh, wow, it's a little foreign concept, right? I suppose that if you, you're you exposed here and there. So I think that to develop your potential to be a climber is not necessary but to finalize it, I think you need to be exposed within the races or training camps or something like that.
1: Going back to the, the EMG question, there actually was a, a couple studies on that.
0: What's EMG for the listeners?
1: Oh, you're going to make me pronounce that? Oh, is oh, it the electromyography? Electromyo- myogra- Thank myogra- you. I, Myography. It's one of those words I cannot pronounce. So they did do some studies comparing climbing to flats and looking at EMG data. One of them I love is like, it's dramatically different. Look at all these different recruitment patterns. And then you dig into the methodology and they were having the people climbing were standing and the people on the flats were seated. So of course, there's going to be different EMG data, but two other studies. And as usual, we will put all these references up on the website. Um, I found two studies that compared seated climbing to seated riding on the flats and virtually no difference in, in muscle recruitment patterns very, very slight at so how long you, you continue to put pressure at, through the pedal um, stroke. That actually on the flats, they were saying um, you would pull through a little longer, which surprised me. I thought it'd be the other way around.
0: From a practical standpoint, Sepp, you, I think it's fair to say, have been slightly spoiled in that you've always lived in mountainous areas growing up in Durango, going to school in Boulder, training here a lot. Do you ever find that when you maybe are at races where there's a lot of flat, you're not doing a lot of climbing, and then you come back to this area and you get back into climbing, do you ever f- sense that you're using different muscle groups, get sore in strange places, anything like that?
3: Um, I, I think on a on a muscular level, I don't really notice it. Um, I think a lot of it is the, yeah, like you said, reading reading the climb and the the different techniques, I guess, that you're using to climb. For me, it's if i did a certain power on a climb it'd be hard for me to replicate that on a on a flat road just cuz you're not working against gravity and the the force and torque is totally different so i i don't think for me personally there's not too much disconnect i just know that i can't do a, a certain power on a steep hill versus a a slight false flat or something like that so but yeah i've been been lucky enough to live in in hilly areas so
1: Cuss wasn't the only one to feel that he can put out more power on a climb. We caught up with cycling legend and past national champion Ned Overend, who talked about how he gets a better workout on climbs, but offers a few unique suggestions for riders who are stuck on the flats.
4: Well, one of the beauties of climbing for me is that all you have to do is just go do it and you can get a workout. If I go somewhere, I mean, I'm looking for the climbs because you know all I have to do is go up this climb and you've got a workout where you can ride in the flats. And uh, if you don't really push yourself, you can waste a lot of time just riding around. So mentally, it's much easier to find a climb. You want to make sure you get a workout. Certainly, I think pushing hard in the flats, for me, it's even harder than in the climbs. It's more painful when I'm in group rides. And I would encourage people to get in group rides with other people that are going fast that, that can really push them and uh, to make sure that they, they can get a proper workout in the flats. Cause oftentimes it's hard to do yourself.
1: So it's not necessarily that you get a huge specificity from, from climbing that's going to help you with climbing. It's that you get, you get a higher quality workout. So you need to look for that quality of workout in the flatlands.
4: Yeah. Yeah. And it's, like I say, it's more painful for me because you know to work on, you know, threshold work in the flats than it is on the climbs. You know, you just you're heading up a climb and it seems like you can get there much more easily with less effort. And that's why uh, riding with with big guys that are powerful and fast in the flats, you know, almost like motor pacing to try and hang on. As mm-hmm. uh, I think, I think you get uh, a lot of the similar fitness benefits of of climbing. Okay. Oh, you can. you don't have the climbs, you do it in the flats. Also, when I'm <laughs> when I'm in a, a big city, I will run the staircase in the stairwells of the big hotels. <laughs> really,
0: <laughs> that's not a bad
4: idea. Yeah, because that's pretty similar. You know, you can push yourself going up the do kind of intervals, and and especially if it's tall building. Sometimes I will actually emerge on the top floor and take the elevator down and do it again because Smart. if i haven't been doing that much running running up and down the steps will make me really sore. Right, right, right.
1: Well, that's also going downstairs or running down hills, that's Oof. how you can injure knees. Nasty. Yeah, and if you're not
4: used to it, it's it's uh
1: it's debilitating. All right, let's get back to our round table.
0: That brings up a good point about gradient itself. Um, is there a difference with climbing on steep grades versus flatter grades?
1: Yeah, that one actually has been addressed in, in at least one study that that I read, and they did find a a difference in both efficiency when the when the grade got harder. Um, and I, I can't remember if that one had EMG data or not, but there was certainly a difference in efficiency. What they also noticed was a big difference in cadence, obviously. And as you got to steeper and steeper grades, cadence dropped. But yeah, so there was a difference in EMG data because you, you saw greater muscle recruitment. And I think there was especially a greater recruitment of the glutes. Uh, so initially they said grade really affected it, but then when they accounted for cadence, it really disappeared. So the conclusion of this study was that really the difference is, is more cadence than anything else. As you get on those steeper and steeper grades, your cadence is gonna drop. And when you're pushing a bigger gear, that's certainly going to affect your your riding style. And that's important. So I would say to our, our Iowa listeners who don't have these climbs to work on, one of the things you can do to simulate a bit of that climbing effect is do some big gear riding. Put your bike in a just obnoxiously big gear, bike into the wind at, at 50, 60 RPM, and just spend some time doing that. And you're getting that, according to this study, is, is really going to be pretty close to that effect of climbing a a steep gradient.
0: And what is the effect that that's going to have on a, a person's physiology?
1: Well, you're, just, you're bringing in a, a strength component. You're bringing in a, a muscle recruitment component. As you have greater strength demands, as, as the torque increase, you're going to have a larger muscle fiber recruitment and your body's going to start saying, let's bring in those bigger muscles like your glutes uh, to help to produce this motion. Where when you're at a higher cadence, you don't need as much muscle fiber recruitment, and you're, you're going to rely a little more on, on, on your aerobic ability. So if you're always doing that on the flats, it's going to be a bit of a shock to your system when you suddenly hit this super steep hill and, and have to get up it. Which I guess, Seth, I mean, the question I have for you as a climber, are you always doing the same cadence? Or I know a lot of climbers spend a lot of time climbing at, at different cadences to, to work different systems. What's your approach?
3: Um, yeah, for me, I'd say I'm pretty pretty fifty fifty. I'm, you know, out of the saddle quite a bit um, compared to a lot of guys, but a lot of it is to to gain speed over maybe the top of a a pitch that's going into a a lower lower gradient, and then sitting down to to settle into a, a certain gradient gradient or or speed. So I think most of it is, is planned, it's, and, a, and a lot of it, too, is just based on feel, you know, recruiting, recruiting different muscles. But personally, I do, throughout the season, I do a lot of big gear work at, like, a higher power output. So you're getting that, the cardio and the, the muscular effect.
1: You're doing that just on climbs?
3: Yeah. Yeah. He has that luxury. <laughs> just hold the front brake and...
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Cus isn't the only one to train his cadence on climbs few years back, I had a chance to interview Joe Dombrowski, a pro tour rider with Cannondale drapac and arguably the top U.S. climber. Sorry, Sep. Dombrowski has a few suggestions on how to approach cadence.
5: In racing, I just kind of ride at whatever is the, the comfortable cadence for me. Our team, I would say probably 80% of the time on mountain stages, we actually run compact cranks. So, most mountain days I'll have a fifty three i think fifty three thirty six it is or fifty three thirty four with a twenty eight eleven twenty eight cassette, which just allows you to spin a bit more, which for me i think is is you know just keeps me a bit fresher for the end but in training it's it's a bit of everything like I do a fair bit of like torque type efforts on climbs where I'll do medium zone three type tempo, whatever you want to call it, type efforts, but you know, at 45 or 50 cadence for Mm -hmm. extended periods of time. And then sometimes I'll do bits where I'll do like three minutes at 40 cadence, then three minutes at 110 cadence going up a climb, but sustaining like a solid power output kind of going back and forth. So I think basically in, in training, yeah, uh, then my, my cadence is, is mixed. Depending on what I'm trying to get out of the workout, then it'll change. But in racing, I'm pretty much always looking for whatever is going to be easiest for me. And I think for most people, that's going to be just their natural self-selected cadence, which for some is going to be higher and some's going to be lower. But I think if you in the race are riding it whatever is comfortable for you, then that's probably what's going to be most efficient for you.
1: Part of a good cadence climbing is having the right gears on your bike. Dr. Sam Milan had some thoughts about that. So let's get back to our conversation with him.
2: That's the other thing that has changed a lot in cycling, the the gears, right? Uh, I mean, all of us were old enough to remember how cycling used to be. I remember when I was a cyclist 100 years ago, (laughs) you had 42, 23, and that was it. And then, so therefore, you you had to stand a lot, you know, and that the power muscle component was very prevalent, and that's been for many years. I remember, remember, remember when the twenty five came out. Oh my gosh, like, who are the wimps that would exactly. ride a twenty yeah. five? <laughs> you are the biggest wimp ever <laughs> and, and with forty two. <laughs> I
0: know. And you saw that in the in the in the sort of the the physique of the riders as well. They were yeah. more powerful. Riders that were still able to win Grand Tours, and yeah. they were mashing those big exactly. gears. Exactly,
2: and, and, and one of the first ones who started to change a little bit the cadence was Indurain. If you, if you see those years, it's a typical image of you can see Buño, Gianni Buño, big power guy, and petting with Indurain. It was like maybe 995, which is very high back in those days, but it's pretty standard towards the low end now. So that has changed also the style of climbing, and, and we don't know yet if it has improved the bioenergetics of climbing but definitely can make the difference. I remember very well in one stage of the tour of Austria or Germany, I forgot. I think it was tour Germany. It was in Solden, which is a glacier, you know, in the border of Austria. It's like a I don't know, like 15% for, for ten miles or something like that. It's brutal. So uh the day of the race, you know, most teams showed up with a standard 25, you know, thirty-nine twenty-five, which is It was a high already. And I forgot which team showed up with that 28. So everybody was laughing at them, making jokes. Ah, 28, you know, what a wimp, you know. They killed it, right? Uh, Whereas like why in the world everybody was climbing before with 25? It was okay. And then you show up with a whole different gear, and you know. So definitely the gear has improved uh, a lot or has changed the game climbing, in my opinion.
1: And that continues. I mean, this year at at Tour Tobago, which has these insanely steep climbs, First year I ever went, I showed up with a 25. Everybody said it was crazy. I finally broke down and got myself a 28. This year, everybody was showing up with a 32. And there was this guy that I was kind of racing. I would pass him on the climbs, get over. He was descending better than me, so he'd pass me on the descents. And then I'd pass him again on the climbs until we got to the really steep climbs. And then all of a sudden, I am sitting there at 45, 50 RPM, even with a 28. And he's just kind of spinning up this climb, and I never saw him again. And it, we talked about it after. It's like getting that 32 has made such a huge difference in this race. So even though there's, there's the old school guys like us that are like, we are fine with our 23, there is an argument for this.
0: If everybody's on a 23, maybe that's the uh, mentality to take. When there's a 32 available, you should probably take
1: it. <laughs> Except what do you ride?
3: Uh, 28 usually I don't yeah I think I've used the 32 once but I've never done races with with anything uh, crazy crazy steep so long cranks too so <laughs>
1: what are
2: yeah. you riding
3: 175 but I think I should probably try shorter
2: but that's incredible just like he just said right at 28 and I don't do any crazy high steep climbs you yeah. know with a 28 28- back in those days, you know, they would kick you out of the race. They would say, no way. This is <laughs> cycling. This is not no mountain biking. This is <laughs> cycling. Out of here, yeah. you know.
1: It took me a couple of years to finally break down and go, I'm not a man anymore. I own a 28.
2: <laughs> it was a big, I, it was a change already from the 42 to the 39. I remember that. I remember. That was already, boy, 39, or oh, what a wimp, you know. <laughs> that was funny.
1: But there is... Yeah, that, that gearing is going to help you a lot. And maybe that's a good argument to our, our Iowa rider again of if you're going to doing these climbs, you particularly, because you're not used to grinding up climbs, should be looking at that that bigger gear and just ignore old people like me who, why are you riding that 32? But certainly doing some of that, that big gear work.
0: I picked up on something you said there, Sepp, about getting out of the saddle half the time. And I know people have different – it's – philosophies maybe about what feels good and, and what maybe instinctually they want to do. But is there any data that says standing is at times more efficient depending on the gradient versus staying seated over the longer, more gradual climbs?
2: I don't know. I, uh, I, I haven't seen anything. I'm sure there might be a study, one or two studies out there. But yeah, that's something that I have always wondered why some uh, cyclists, they do much better standing versus uh, uh seating i always tell this story about contador so the first time he turned pro he was amateur you know in the uh, previous year 10 pro and uh so we did the physiological test right at the beginning in the off season it's a graded test for higher and higher the uh, the power output so obviously where's the audience, worse where's your and eventually that's it you're done right so the typical thing when a, when a cyclist is about to be done is that they start standing on the bike Right? Desperate. Instinctually. Instinctually, exactly. So that's when you know that, you know, that that writer maybe has only half a workload left of that step, or maybe the entire step at at best, right? So when I remember Contador, whatever was the the stage, he started standing up, the entire stage. And And I modified the protocols, and my protocol is 10 minutes long right? It's not the one minute or three, it's 13 minutes long. So he started standing up and I said, oh boy, this kid, you know, he's done, you know, like a very poor level already. Like nobody's done. Nobody's standing at this intensity. That's it. Well, he finished that step. Okay. We bring <laughs> him up. He goes to the next step. He does the entire step standing. And I'm like, wow, I have never seen this already, but he's got to be dead. Next one standing in the next one and they ended up yeah he had world-class parameters and he did like a a good 30 minutes on the bike standing 35 minutes or so which is now why i have no idea but i I, if he had been just on the saddle maybe he wouldn't have done that so that's where like we need more research to know about that and i encourage anybody out there who wants to research on this because we need to find out (laughs) So
1: I actually spent some time analyzing Contador's climbing style and trying to imitate it because he has this very unique, you, you can see his hips okay. and shoulders uh, moving in sync with one another um, in, in a very unique way. And when I actually figured it out and started doing it, I did feel my climbing was more powerful. I was climbing much better standing than I ever had in my life. Um, but what I also noticed is to do what he does, he must have an unbelievable core. And I do think core is, especially when you are standing on the bike, really, really critical because that's really what's the only thing that's now stabilizing you on the bike. And I can tell you one of the quickest ways to identify a rider that has a bad core is to watch them climb because they get out of the saddle and I call it the wet noodle effect. You just see their upper body flopping back and forth because they don't have a core to stabilize them. You watch Contador, that upper body doesn't move. It is just It's just rock locked. Solid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, again, if you're trying to improve your climbing and you don't have access to the climbs, make sure you're getting a lot of good core work. Mm-hmm.
0: And if you do have access to climbs.
1: Still do core.
0: Exactly. And also climb out of the saddle and do repeats. I I, I know that Contador was known for doing that, for going out and climbing intentionally standing for long periods of time.
2: Another thing that I think it's, it's important, uh, speaking about the core, is like some f- sort of strength in your arms. Uh, and that's why it's advisable, advice to do uh, some um, uh, weightlifting in the upper body in the winter, uh, because if there's a very demanding climbing that you have to stand uh, you know, on the saddle and you have to use your arms, they're going to get fatigued. And uh, when they, the muscles get fatigued, you know, they can't uh, clear lactate. So the lactate from your muscles in your legs can be cleared out by the lactate in your uh, arms as Mm. well. So if your muscles are very fatigued in your arms, they're not going to just only not be able to clear a lactate, they're going to produce lactate. So that's another area that, uh, you know, many cyclists complain that, oh, my my arms are not strong enough. And that's one of the things that we have learned from uh, mountain bikers quite a bit. If you look at many mountain bikers, they're pretty solid in the upper body because it's an adaptation to get there because they need to use the arms a lot, you know, so I think that a little bit of that can be also be transferred to road cycling.
1: great advice let's quickly check back with Dombrowski, who has some interesting takes on what makes climbing different, why he feels core is critical and how much he feels we should stand up
5: i think if if the races you're doing have a lot of climbing that it's, you're better off you know, being able to do at least some of your training on, on sustained climbs. Because I think even just in terms of muscles that, that you use in different, different muscle groups, that there is sort of an adaptation period to that, and you can become, over time, a bit more efficient. You know, off-the-bike work becomes particularly important because you know a lot of times a long climb you're making power for a sustained amount of time and sometimes if our core stabilizing muscles and and just things that are typical like that cyclists typically have problems with like weak glutes and that kind of thing over you know a 20 or 30 minute effort on a long climb i think that you know that's when those things start to fail and you get a bit sloppy like you know, maybe you get out of the saddle more because you're not you're not comfortable staying seated in the saddle, making power and that kind of stuff.
1: Is it you're you're using completely different muscles, or do you feel that um, when you're on the flats, you can get away a little more with a weak core and a weak glutes? Where if you're you're going up a climb, um, because it's sustained, because you never get the brakes, then you basically can't get away with it anymore.
0: Yeah,
5: I think I think yeah, basically the fact that. On a long climb, there's no point where you can you can just ease off, and a lot of times you're not the one dictating the pace. You're just kind of along for the ride, trying to ride sort of within your head a bit. For example, a lot of people, if they if they haven't done a lot of climbing, if say they live in a flatter area and they go out to do long climbs, like a lot of times they'll get low back pain, for example, and in response to that. Maybe 10, 15 minutes into the climb, their low back starts to hurt. So they feel like they have to get out of the saddle to relieve that. And yep. the thing is, it's just kind of a, uh, I guess like a bit of a domino effect. Like things, like you're not comfortable. So then you compensate for that by like, say, getting out of the saddle. But that's, you know, then you're, you're sort of wasting energy in trying to compensate for For a lack of like sort of strength to to continue making power in that position, and ultimately you compromise your your power output if you're on a climb and you're constantly getting getting out of the saddle to be comfortable, then especially if you have weak core and you're you know you've got a lot of movement, your heart rate Mm -hmm. goes up, but your power doesn't necessarily um you yeah you're basically just wasting energy. Whereas if like, Bradley Wiggins, for example, is a guy that comes to mind for me. Like, when I think of somebody that's super stable and solid on the bike, to the point where he almost looks, like, awkward when he gets out of the saddle on a climb, because you, you rarely see it. Right. But it's also just a case of, like, superb sort of stability strength, so that way he doesn't have to waste the energy getting out of the saddle when he because he's uncomfortable. But, you know, there's also, like, in, in a race, you know, there's, you have a race to respond to and, and to ride to. And sometimes, you know, when somebody's attacking or whatever and you have to follow that, the, the only way to really, for most people to make the power necessary is to get out of the saddle. Right. But in general, I think that if you can minimize that, that time, then that's better.
1: So if you're going up a long sustained climb as long as guys aren't attacking, you're staying in the saddle.
5: I I try to be. I tend to climb out of the saddle more than than most. I've noticed that, uh, like especially over this winter, I've done quite a bit of gym work. And I've noticed personally that, you know, in really making sure that I commit to doing that and, you know, every day making sure I spend the time on that, that it's made a big difference and I'm a lot more comfortable staying in the saddle and making sustained power.
1: A round table definitely had some thoughts about standing versus seated as well, so let's get back to that conversation. And, Steph, again, I found it really fascinating yeah. you say you like to to be standing half the yeah. time. do you find it easier
3: or? uh yeah, definitely i mean for me i I think all my best power is done like eighty eighty percent standing, but i think I think a lot of it too, going back to the different different rider types, different body weights smaller guys like Richie Port um, or like Mike Woods, guys that also stand a lot. They're, you know, smaller guys and you can see them put their body weight into each pedal stroke and bounce out of it kind of like Contador does. And then it, for them, it's less costly because they're smaller guys bouncing the pedals. And then if you see a guy that's, that's 80 kilos doing that, it may be, uh, maybe less efficient for him. So for me, it feels very natural just to run, run on the pedals, if you will, and, you know, use my body weight. So for me, I'm the opposite. If if I'm, if I'm really hurting,
0: I'm sitting. And if I feel good, I'm standing. standing so it's, yeah. And I'm the same way. It's one of those things where, you know, that staying seated might be more efficient, but sometimes staying seated gets you dropped if you stick to it too much. So sometimes you have to sacrifice efficiency for the power that you need to stay up there. And Maybe in the long term, you do get dropped, but sometimes you've got a K left of a climb and you just have to grind it out and you stand up and you power over it and you stay with the group or something like that. So that's just a a necessity at that point, I think.
1: So I'm looking at this study from 2009 and it's led by an author, Duck, his last name is actually D-U-C. Uh, and they did analysis of, of standing versus seated. And some of the things they found is standing is definitely less efficient. You have a higher heart rate, but it is more powerful, as you were saying. So if you really need to put out the power, you you need to be out of the saddle. They also found that it actually became more beneficial as you hit higher and higher gradients. A couple other things that they saw, there was a big difference in, in muscle recruitment. So as soon as you stand using more of your your glute maximus your your biceps uh, f- uh, femoris and your rectus femoris and so what I believe they said in the study was that there is that benefit to sometimes getting out of the saddle sit back down get out of the saddle because you're essentially changing the recruitment patterns you're, you're giving yourself a little micro break the you know, muscles that you were relying on might be able to, to put out a little less power, and you can start relying on muscles that you were using a little less before. And they did show that people could last longer by alternating the getting out of the saddle and, and, and sitting down. So I was, that's why I was interested if that was part of what you experience is.
3: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think I think there's a lot to be said about changing the rhythm, especially climbing. And that's for me personally. I know a lot of people prefer to just be very, very steady. And for me, it almost feels more costly to ride one cadence, one, one, uh, bike position. So I think it comes down to personal preference a lot of the time.
1: So interestingly, I have this workout that I give uh, all my athletes when they have access to a climb where I'll have them do repeats up the climb. And the goal is each repeat to try to do the exact same time. So I don't want them killing it the first time and then getting slower and slower and slower. It's a great threshold workout. But the other thing I have them do is let's say they do six repeats. I have to have them do four or five all seated and one or two all standing. And I would say of probably 100 athletes I've given this workout to, I've only ever had two that could match the time seated when they were standing. Almost everybody was slower standing. Was I one of those? I never gave it to you. I didn't? I thought I had done it. Or did I give it to you? Maybe. I don't know. You no, know, you were not one of them. Okay. Well, I'm gonna I know who the it. two are. So now now you're going to go and prove me wrong. <laughs> Before we ask our roundtable to give their take-homes, let's see what suggestions Dombrowski had.
5: I think, you know, there's, there's a few things to focus on. Mm-hmm. Um, one is in training, you need to be getting in some sustained efforts because on climbs you're going to be making sustained power. <clears throat> but that doesn't necessarily mean just steady efforts. You can go out and do 15 or 20 minute efforts up a climb and do it at steady power output which is fine but the thing is unless you're doing uphill time trials your power output on climbs in races is not steady at all you know it's it's dictated by the other people in the race with you and so you know there's going to be big surges and then you're going to have to settle into a, a a solid power after a big surge so i think you know, working on that is, is pretty beneficial. Like, you know, going out and doing like sort of spiked efforts on climbs where, you know, you've got a a sprint or a short burst, and then you have to, you know, continue like a high, high power output, sort of uh, adapting to, to those changes in power on, on the climb. So I guess, yeah, the first thing would be, you know, working on sustained efforts to get used to that sustained power output and and making sure that they're not all just steady. Second thing I would say would be again like the the off the bike exercises I think are super important because when you have sustained power like that, if your your core isn't strong, then you start to fail and you get sloppy and and you're gonna compensate somehow. And ultimately it's gonna it's gonna cost you power that could be going into the pedals, but you're you know you're gonna get more inefficient as, you know, sort of those stabilizing muscle groups start to, to fatigue. And then lastly, I mean, it, it does come down to power to weight. So don't go, go a little bit easy on the cake.
1: (laughs) Now let's see what our round table suggests.
0: All right. So to summarize and give this listener in Iowa, the best advice we can give him and you go, what does he need to do to become a better climber?
2: I think it's very important in my opinion uh, to train that uh, you know threshold intensities which is kind of what you're going to face climbing and increase that glycolytic activity it's very important to train your base because that's when you're going to clear out the lactate and it's very important as trevor said that you know maybe use lower gears to try to simulate what's out there and that alone is going should help you to improve climbing putting that power to rate ratio this ultimately is going to improve your power to rate ratio and that should that should help you and, uh, and then, sure, if, if you can find races or training camps where you can go and, uh, and do climbing and experiment and be exposed to that feeling of reading and knowing the position and how to, the mental aspect that is important too, you know, of, of the climbing. Uh, I think that, uh, yeah, that, that Iowa rider or anybody, you know, in those areas with flat terrain or, or rolling terrain, yeah, they could be as successful as someone living in the Rocky Mountains climbing. Fantastic. Fantastic.
0: So, my advice given that he does have some short, sounds like steep climbs in that area, just going out there and doing repeats on those short, steep climbs is going to give him a sense of what he would experience on some climbs out in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, wherever he might end up. And he can experiment on those climbs. You know, he could do low cadence uh, efforts up that. He can do high cadence efforts up that. He can stand, he can stay seated and all of those things, mixing it up will giving give him at least a sense of what he, he would face on bigger climbs elsewhere.
3: Yeah. I think a lot of it is um, improved by by big gear work and then changes in rhythm, whether that's that's transitioning from sitting to standing, you know, regardless of the train, I think you can do a lot of uh, sitting, standing work on the flats as well, um, just to recruit those those different muscles. And then a lot of it, as well, I think, is your your bike position. So you know, on a on a steep climb, if you experiment on those uh, shorter, steeper climbs, you'll notice yourself maybe maybe shifting forward, maybe shifting backwards on the saddle. So whatever you can do to kind of replicate those uh, changes in in bike position that you might see on a on a longer climb, you can just simulate those those different. Different conditions.
1: I guess I'll, I'll round this out. So, I have the experience with just having that one, two minute climb uh, in Toronto. And the one thing I will caution you about is you can be really anaerobic on that climb. And that's not going to prepare you for a 20 minute climb or even a 10 minute climb. Uh, I know a lot of riders in Toronto who are amazing on that one minute climb, but there's a race uh, in, in June where we have a 10 minute climb and they hate it because it's so different. So if you're gonna use that climb, I would actually recommend do some of the the threshold work that uh, Dr. Sam Malam was talking about, but finish, like if you're doing a five minute interval, finish that five minutes with the climb so that you're not hitting it fresh and all anaerobic. You, you've actually you've got yourself going at a threshold intensity. You're getting a little tired, and then you finish with that climb, and you at least get a little more of a feel of what a long climb actually feels like. Um, I think everything else that I was going to touch on has been covered. I would say you need to do a lot of big gear work, so get out and do those 5, 10, 20-minute efforts at, at 50 RPM at close to the threshold. That's also going to help you. I think one of the things that is different about climbing that you can't simulate on flats is – you never get a break on the climb. Or when you're on a flats, if you're hurting, you can ease up a little bit. You ease up on a climb and you're, you're going to come to a stop or fall over. So that's what I always struggle with on climbs is, man, when is this going to stop? When am I going to get my break? Um, and I think when you're doing some big gear work, it might help you get a bit of that feeling of just won't end what's going on. And yeah, I completely agree with Sepp. It might have people look at you weird, but do some practice standing as well. Don't put your bike on a trainer and lift up your front wheel and think that you're simulating (laughs) climbing. It isn't. It's not the same thing. You don't have gravity fighting you. So, sorry, that's not going to help.
0: That was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at webletters at competitorgroup.com. Subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Be sure to leave us a rating and a comment. While you're there, check out our sister podcast the Velo News podcast, which covers news about the week in cycling. Become a fan of Fast Talk on Facebook at facebook.com slash News and on Twitter at twitter.com slash News. Fast Talk is a joint production between Velo News and Connor Coaching. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Trevor Connor, Sepp Kuss, Dr. Inigo San Milan, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.